Welcome into the Cycling Scoop, everybody. Alex Halstead here, coming at you here in the offseason. I'm joined today by Dylan Montz of the Ames Tribune. And uh, Dylan, thanks for being with me. We're here towards the end of January. I know it's been about a month without football. Football will be back soon. But um, thanks for coming on as we uh, break down the offseason and uh, at least get us through this winter a little bit. Yeah, it's been a while since we've been on the mics and we're kind of in the dead of the offseason a little bit, although winter workouts are going on. Um, you know, spring ball is maybe three, four weeks away. It seems like it's been late February uh, the last few years. So, yeah, it, it's been uh, kind of – it felt like a long period of time at times, and but, um, you know, we'll be jumping back into it before we know it. So I know um, that will be kind of exciting for everybody to kind of uh, turn the page to next year. Only a month into this offseason, but I thought now would be a good time uh, to kind of reconvene and go over a few few things. There have been a few changes within the Iowa State football program um, from the strength and conditioning aspect to the coaching aspect to even the roster has transformed just a little bit. And so uh, we're going to start off here by going over some housekeeping stuff, and then Dylan and I will jump into some of the biggest offseason questions before Iowa State begins spring ball in uh, four to six weeks. And then we'll also talk about the 2020 recruiting class, which Iowa State signed in in uh, December. But then next week, uh, here in the first week of February, Iowa State will uh, officially kind of put a bow on it if there's anything else that they end up adding. But Dylan, let's start with the housekeeping stuff. And uh, really right after Iowa State got back, from the Camping World Bowl. Uh, the first note that came out was that tight ends coach Alex Gulish uh, was going to be leaving. That became official. Gulish is now at UCF as the co-offensive coordinator and tight ends coach. He had been with Matt Campbell uh, since Campbell arrived at Iowa State. Uh, he came from Illinois, uh, was recruiting coordinator and tight ends coach. And uh, losing him, you know, you lose a guy that, um, you know, more so than anything, I think is a recruiter and uh, kind of one of the energy guys on the staff. And so they lose him and then obviously uh, made a new hire. Yeah, the recruiting coordinator piece of it was all really interesting too. And I would say Derek Hooger's on the staff and um, he's the director of player personnel, I think. So they, they have another recruiting guy, but Golish was kind of the guy maybe that put all the pieces together in terms of um, what their classes would ultimately look like. And he was a guy that could obviously get out on the road and recruit really well. Um, it is a, a, a promotion for him. So the, the move makes sense. And there was uh, some rumblings, I guess, um, kind of around the Camping World Bowl that maybe something would happen, um, that he would uh, get this kind of opportunity. But yeah, I think, um, you know, they replaced the, the opening with Mick McCall, uh, the former Northwestern offensive coordinator for uh, 12 years. Uh, he was let go in December, I believe, right after the regular season ended. He gets plugged into the offensive staff as the running backs coach. Tom Manning becomes the tight ends coach as well as the offensive coordinator. Um, and I, th I think a lot of the the move behind bringing McCall onto staff, who Matt Campbell previously had a relationship with um, from their days at Bowling Green when Campbell was the offensive line coach and McCall was the quarterback's coach and offensive coordinator, was adding some uh, veteran experience to the coaching staff because there are so many, um, quote-unquote, young guys um, – even though they've gotten experience on the staff and, you know, these guys have been together for a while now, adding a voice like McCall's, I think, is, is probably invaluable. And, um, you know, he has some cachet as well, being an offensive coordinator. So it's just another resource, I think, uh, for all those guys to kind of uh, get together and game plan and, um, you know, I, I guess um, to be be a voice for the, the players as well. So it seemed like a good move and, and one that made sense given the prior connections. 
Yeah, my expectation with McCall is uh, that he's going to be more of the John Haycock of the offense than he is going to be a big-time guy on the recruiting trail or anything like that. This is a veteran coach who's uh, been around, seen different types of offenses um, and different types of things through the years. And so I think more than anything, he's going to probably provide two things. And one of them is be that veteran voice like Haycock has provided, uh, just being a longtime coach on the defensive side. You know, McCall, I think, brings that to the offensive side. But I think the second thing he probably brings to the staff is uh, maybe some different ideas. You know, you look at this offensive staff and, you know, Tom Manning and Jeff Myers, those guys have been together for – uh, quite a while going back to Myers playing at Toledo. Joe Gordon's been around this staff uh, for some time. Nate Shieldhouse has now been around it for two years. Um, and so when you look at that offensive staff, it's a lot of guys who have similar ideas and similar backgrounds. And so I think McCall brings in some different stuff, some Big Ten type of offensive ideas maybe uh, to continue to uh, just add to uh, the playbook that they have. Uh, McCall, like you said, will be coaching running backs. Uh, because of that, that means Tom Manning shifting from running backs to tight ends. I think that was a fit we speculated about and uh, probably the perfect situation for Manning because when he left for a year with the Indianapolis Colts, he was coaching tight ends and coaching um, some of the tight end, best tight ends in the NFL. And so as he shifts back to tight ends, not only is it a position he's comfortable with and he's going to have good guys to work with and Charlie Cooler, uh, Chase Allen, and uh, Dylan Sainer and some of those young guys, Scholar Loving Black and um, Easton Dean, but I think he's going to be able to benefit a little bit on the recruiting trail. You know, obviously as the offensive coordinator, you're recruiting every position. But when he goes and talks to these tight ends, he can say, hey, this is what I did with uh, Eric Ebron in Indianapolis. And I think that that doesn't hurt for him to now have even a little bit more hands on on the recruiting trail with with those tight ends. So I think it works out perfectly. You bring in a veteran coach, uh, the running back's position, you're really more so teaching ball security and fundamentals. That's something McCall's done for 30 years. Um, and then Manning gets to kind of go to a position that I think really fits him. So they do lose a recruiter in Alex Golish. I think they'll be okay in Illinois. You know, you're going to see Nate Shieldhouse probably be a little bit more heavily in Illinois with Eli Rashid. Um, but all in all, you know, I think a lot of this stuff uh, with the with the one coaching change this offseason makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and the point you brought up with McCall maybe being kind of the overseer uh, in addition to his running backs role is kind of interesting because, as you mentioned, running backs coaches, although they are hands-on with those guys and, and do teach uh, some of the fundamentals, uh, they – they are freed up a little bit more to kind of, if depending on what the head coach wants, they can be a recruiter if you want to. Um, that's what Nate Shieldhouse was a couple years ago when he first joined the staff as the running backs coach. He was he could get out and recruit a little bit more, and as well as uh, kind of be hands on with those guys. But um, you know, McCall because of his experiences elsewhere, and because um, you know of some of his uh, successes in the past as a quarterbacks coach, I think that was uh, primarily his responsibility. Um, at his other stops prior to Northwestern as well. But it just allows him to take uh, the, the bird's eye view of things like like John Haycock you mentioned. Um, you know, I think there are times maybe when Haycock still gravitates towards the secondary and the safeties uh, just because that's what he had coached for so long. But I think um, it does free that person up um, to be a little bit more of a voice in game planning or uh, strategy or uh, be a resource for Matt Campbell in, in some of the decision making. But, um, you know, I, I think like, like we mentioned, the hire made, made sense for a lot of different reasons, that being one of them, even though you do lose a recruiter and Alex Golish, uh, you can potentially gain um, something else just given uh, the personnel you have now. The bigger change, I think, in terms of just philosophy and the coaching staff 
I think it's the second one, and that's that uh, shortly after the bowl game, Matt Campbell informed uh, strength and conditioning coach Rudy Way that he was not going to be renewed. He was not going to be coming back uh, to Iowa State for uh, what, a fifth season. So um, you look at uh, Rudy Wade, and he, he goes back with Matt Campbell to Toledo. He, you know, brought him to Iowa State with him. And, you know, it's it's one of the, the jobs that I think maybe gets overlooked a little bit. I think a lot of people do understand it, but there's maybe some people that don't understand how involved that strength and conditioning coach is because when you get to the offseason in this January, February, March, and then especially into the summer in June, July, um, you know, that's mostly one-on-one time or work with the strength and conditioning staff and the players when the coaches are either out recruiting or can't be as hands-on with the players. They're spending a lot of time with the strength program, uh, with the strength coaches, and uh, that staff, you know, really shapes, you know, in terms of philosophy, how the development in your program goes. So Matt Campbell kind of parting ways with Rudy Wade after, you know, several years at Iowa State, but even going back to Toledo, obviously is a clear clear indicator that Campbell wants to go in a different direction, either with philosophy or he feels like they can get a little bit more. And so uh, Rudy Wade is gone. They bring in Dave Andrews from Pitt. Um, you know, he had been at Pittsburgh for, I think, five years. They'd gone to bowl games in four or five years. Um, I'll let you – I was handed over to you to get your thoughts, but I think the most notable part to me is that Rudy made Rudy Wade was 39th in the country in making uh, $265,500 $265, according to the USA Today. Uh, the report is that um, Andrews is going to make $470,000. So they're almost paying, you know, close to twice as much for a new strength and conditioning coach. And uh, based on last year's salary data, he would be ninth in the country in terms of salary. So Matt Campbell's really going all in on this move. Yeah, I think that's the most telling thing about the whole thing. Obviously, um, uh, letting Rudy Wade move on, given their history together, not only in the four years at Iowa State, but at Toledo is significant unto itself. But then you think um, how much of a priority they made to get uh, Davey Andrews to Ames uh, by doubling the salary that the strength coach made uh, is a huge indicator that um, something had to change there. And, uh, you know, Matt Campbell's talked so much in the past about Iowa State being a developmental program, how important the offseason is getting these guys in here that are maybe a little bit more uh, lightly recruited than some of their counterparts in the Big 12 or, or whatever the case is, uh, being able to develop those guys so they um, could be in a position to play early if they needed them to, but certainly as they get to their redshirt sophomore year or redshirt junior, redshirt senior certainly, that um, uh, they can be counted on. And that goes from the offensive line to the defensive line and all the way back uh, toward those skill positions. But Dave Andrews coming on board, uh, he has uh, his resume, I think, uh, speaks for itself a little bit. The the pit um, uh, stuff, I think he, he it sounds like he did a good job there looking at different um, message boards and stuff. I think people um, certainly thought that move was was notable, him leaving. He spent time at Notre Dame, I think, in the past. And then it, was he at Illinois, I think, as well. So um, he's been around a lot of different Power 5 programs coming to Iowa State. Um, the other kind of side note to this, uh, Trevor Ryan, the former Iowa State receiver, uh, was on the, the staff at Pitt under Andrews uh, this past year, and uh, he'll be coming to Ames as well. So um, kind of an interesting little, um, you know, full circle type moment. It feels like he was just on campus. Um, you know, he, well, like, technically he was just a couple of years ago um, making plays on the special teams and certainly uh, an invaluable piece uh, of the puzzle at receiver. But, um, you know, his familiarity is is going to be big for the staff, but certainly getting Andrews, I think um, it 
could be transformative just because of, of some of the differences that he will bring, some of the changes in philosophy. And um, like you mentioned, uh, the biggest thing is Matt Campbell felt like it, w- it was needed. So what this does in the offseason and, and in what ways it shows up maybe next year, um, you know, is, is certainly something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think this is a move that's probably going to take some more time to see how it what it actually means because you know it's probably going to affect the the development of say some of those offensive linemen that came in last class or that will come in and so this one could take a couple years to even know what it means but it'll be interesting when we hear from Matt Campbell uh, a little bit more in depth about why he wanted to go this direction and we're going to talk to Dave Andrews soon and so we'll hear kind of what his philosophy is uh, because that's one thing about the strength and conditioning world is there's like three four branches of strength and conditioning coaches and like you come from kind of uh, almost a group of them and they all kind of have their own different philosophy in terms of how much bench pressing matters or how much uh, different stuff matters you look back to I think it was Yancey McKnight and uh, he had those treadmills well Rudy Wade came in and basically got rid of like half the speed treadmills because I think he said football's not played in a straight line and so now Dave Andrews comes in and he might have a different philosophy and I had heard you know kind of the first week that the players got back that Matt Campbell was kind of going to um mix up some of the strength and conditioning stuff, which obviously he's done with Dave Andrews, but also kind of take the nutrition uh, aspect into a completely next level. And I know Iowa State recently hired an actual nutritionist just for football. So that's one thing that Campbell wanted. That's part of the reason they're building that big facility right right now and that, you know, you see all that construction outside the Bergstrom football complex is because of the nutrition aspect. Um, and so I think this Dave Andrews thing and hiring a nutritionist within the last couple of months is kind of together shows that he feels like that's an area where Iowa State maybe needs to get an advantage or needs to improve what they've had in recent years. Well, and it, it, it has ripple effects or has the potential to have ripple effects and everything too, even going back uh, – to some of the recruiting philosophies and, and it's not hiring the strength coach isn't going to change the entire recruiting philosophy, but there are differences. I mean, we've seen in the past, uh, the previous Iowa state staff used to recruit linemen that were maybe a little bit uh, slimmer or didn't have as much weight to them. And then they would try to pack on all the, this weight to these guys. And then you saw a shift uh, with this uh, with this current staff where the guys are maybe a little bit bigger coming in and then they're trying to slim them down and mold them into whether it's a guard or a tackle or, or whatever the case is. So um, depending on how you want your strength and conditioning program to operate, you recruit a little bit differently. And I'm not saying that's, again, going to be a, a full-on change, but Having Andrews, um, you know, they call those the strength coach, strength coaches, culture coaches. Sometimes, just given um, how hands-on they are, basically twelve months a year, how important they are. Um, you know, that's that's kind of um, you know, it's it's on par with uh, the head coach in certain ways, just given um, how how big development is in in the world of college football. So. Uh, yeah, we, we may not know exactly what kinds of influences there are right away, although I think Andrews will be illuminating in that. But, um, you know, it is something that a couple years from now or next year or whatever the case is, we um, could see some of the fruits of that labor and, and exactly how they got from point A to, to point B. The biggest, or I should say the biggest, uh, the, the final piece of housekeeping news would be just kind of some roster modifications, some roster changes, mostly uh, right now because of attrition. Iowa State did have nine uh, mid-year signees uh, who came in early. They also had two gray shirts come in early. So uh, they have 11 new scholarship players on campus who arrived a couple weeks ago for winter workouts, and uh, we'll have more on them 
uh, when when things get to spring ball and those guys are going through 15 spring practices. But along with that, there has been a little bit of attrition, some transfers uh, leaving the program, and that's typically when you see it is after a bowl game, after the season, uh, before those kids go into winter workouts. You also maybe see a few more once you get through spring ball and kids decide whether or not Iowa State kind of still fits them uh, depending on what their situation is. The, the transfers that uh, kind of off the top of my head, Jalen Martin at wide receiver is transferring a graduate transfer for his final season. I just saw that I think it looks like he's going to go to Pitt State. Um, so that's a lower level. Uh, Braden Narvison is transferring and he's going to San Diego. Um, again, of FCS level, I think. And uh, then Tymar Sutton is transferring, and there's no known location. Those three kind of more minor. Uh, I think Jalen Martin had like two catches in his career. We obviously saw Narvison get a little bit of a shot as a kicker last year, but but uh, redshirted and then didn't, didn't play a lot. And uh, Tymar Sutton was more of a special teams guy during his time here. So those three more so than anything, they're getting opportunities elsewhere, and uh, those scholarships free up. With the Narverson one, Connor Sally has been put on scholarship for his final season. And, um, you know, he, he made eight of his last nine field goals. And so he's presumed to be the, the main kicker unless Iowa State still adds somebody here uh, before next season. So those are kind of the housekeeping notes. Uh, but then the big one or the most notable transfer so far is Real Mitchell. Uh, this isn't a shock to anybody, but it, it is official. Real Mitchell has transferred from Iowa State. And uh, more than anything, it just uh, – takes a little bit of depth away from that room entering spring ball and then ultimately 2020. Yeah, it was not something that should have surprised anybody. It was kind of, um, you know, maybe depending on who you are, it was either in the back of your mind or at the forefront of your mind um, for the last year or so, just given the ascent of, of Brock Purdy. But, um, you know, the, the Real Mitchell case will always be interesting. He was their first uh, quarterback in the 2018 class. Um, Brock Purdy was obviously recruited late then and after the early signing period came in and, and got the shot, um, you know, after some uh, back and forth uh, between him and Zeb Noland or, or that conversation, the Oklahoma State game in 2018 from there on, um, he's he's been the guy. Um, the quarterback position is always uh, difficult. It's not like a, a wide receiver, even a running back where um, you could have multiple guys in there in the same class. It doesn't take away necessarily from anybody's opportunity. The quarterback, uh, typically there's only going to be one, one guy that does it. You're not going to see a lot of uh, dual quarterback systems or anything. So um, there was going to be an odd man out there, uh, ended up being Real Mitchell. And, and part of that was, um, you know, part of his, I think, um, intent on transferring is to, to be a quarterback, be able to go find a starting job. And he could have had a role here potentially. I know people have talked about different things of him changing positions or him being used a little bit more as a, a gadget guy because uh, I think he is uh, talented. I think uh, certainly there's speed there. Really smart kid. Uh, I think he can be an asset to somebody. But um, when your I guess heart is set on playing quarterback, um, you know. The, the, Brock Purdy is kind of an impediment toward that um, for that player. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see where he winds up, um, what kind of happens with his career now. If he is intent on, on staying as a quarterback, um, having that be his position. But, um, yeah, it, it, it was it, it felt like a matter of time, whether it was, um, you know, in this winter workout period or whether it was after spring ball. But it does impact their depth because now you have Brock Purdy, who was a junior, played in – Every game last season um, was banged up at times, but was able to kind of persevere. But now 
Um, you have two true freshmen who are going to be part of the class with Aiden Bauman and Hunter Deckers and Bauman's on campus right now as an early enrollee. Deckers won't get here until, uh, the summer. And then, um, you have Blake Clark uh, as a walk-on. So, uh, kind of a tenuous situation, maybe just given some of the, um, the, the experience levels behind Purdy, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess it's a situation where if Purdy stays healthy, then, um, you're good to go. And it's not a concern if he isn't. Uh, you're in kind of a, a tough spot. So it's certainly something to kind of uh, watch as it unfolds, but uh, the Mitchell piece wasn't uh, surprising, like I said. Mitchell's kind of had an interesting uh, few years because you go back to his senior year after he'd committed to Iowa State, and he was a starter at, at St. John Bosco for the first several games, but then got beat out by a younger player, um, and that player is now going to Clemson, and he's the number two recruit in the country, according to 24-7 Sports. So uh, obviously a really good player who in a few years could be talked about if he produces the way that you know his rating says as a you know first-round type NFL type of player. And so high school kind of got difficult for him after being the guy, and then he gets to Iowa State early before Brock Purdy, and then all of a sudden Brock Purdy becomes the guy as a true freshman. And uh, like you said, he was not going to be the guy next year in 2020. Uh, if Purdy goes early after next year, which would take a great season, but people at least have thrown his name out there, then maybe 2021. But if Purdy comes back again, then you're not looking until you know 2022 for Mitchell. And then by then, you're a senior, and you know uh, Bauman and and Deckers are kind of both there competing with you as guys who are who've been in the program for a couple of years. So it was not the perfect situation for Mitchell. Yes, if something happens to Purdy next year, uh, they could be in tough shape. You know, he just made it through a 13-game season, you know, kind of a bum ankle at times. Uh, but Mitchell was always going to be that guy that came in. And next year now, if something happened, you know, Bowman's probably got the leg up because of spring ball. But we also saw, saw Purdy a couple of years ago come in in the summer and be able to start games. And so that doesn't necessarily eliminate Deckers from being in that mix as the number two guy either. So uh, it, it does take away depth and some experience, uh, but ultimately I, I think people saw this coming. And the biggest thing, and I've seen people bring up, you know, why didn't Iowa State play him in the Kansas State game when uh, Purdy was banged up? And why didn't they give him more opportunities here and there? I don't think Iowa State playing him a few more series against Kansas State or a few series here and there more than he did was going to make a difference. I think this is what he was going to do because Brock Purdy stands in his way next season. It didn't have anything to do with he wanted – some more time as a backup. So I don't think anything Iowa State did would have changed things. In fact, you know, Iowa State played him a little bit, you know, in that receiver type role. He had a catch this year. He had some times where he came in more as a running threat. Um, you know, out of high school, he had offers from some other Power 5 schools, but they were as an athlete, not as a quarterback. Iowa State took him as a quarterback, which is why he came to Ames. Um, the bottom line is it doesn't sound like he was very interested in do, being a split guy between quarterback and that blaze package or a split guy between – wide receiver and quarterback. He wants to be a quarterback, and that's why he's leaving. And I don't think there's any hard feelings, but if he was open to playing other positions, he would have been playing other positions. I, I think Iowa State was interested in utilizing him, but he wants to be a quarterback. So that's just kind of what it is at the end of the day. And he's the most notable transfer because people pay attention to quarterback position quite a bit, and, and it does hurt their depth. But you know, so far this offseason, not really any surprises along uh, those lines. I think Iowa State now that a salary's on scholarship, they're right around 86 or so scholarships. Um, so you can still expect a little bit more to shuffle depending on what they add in 2020 with grad transfers and that sort of thing. But uh, this roster is starting to get pretty set as they get towards uh, spring ball. So, Dylan, I think that wraps up the housekeeping part. Let's move on uh, to these last, uh, the first of these last two sections. We're going to first talk about some of the offseason questions that maybe are going to linger for the next four to six weeks going into spring ball. And then we'll 
round out the podcast uh, right after that uh, by talking a little bit about the 2020 recruiting class. But first of all, with the big offseason questions, I know I did five questions. I think you did something similar. Um, as Iowa State kind of pushes on and into February soon, and then, you know, like you said, at the end of February, first week of March, it's going to be spring ball. Uh, what are some of the biggest questions or the biggest question that you kind of wrote, wrote about? Yeah, the, the, there's several. Um, probably the biggest one that we can talk about, just the one that's always going to come to my, my mind first is the offensive line, what that's going to look like next year. Um, obviously, it's been uh, well documented at this point that they were going to lose four seniors uh, that started uh, last year. Um, they'll get back Trevor Downing, who I thought had a really nice uh, redshirt freshman year, uh, came in and, and started at left guard, and I thought um, – you know, looked really good. And he's been a kid we've talked about for the last couple of years now as, as a priority on the recruiting trail as a guy, as a true freshman that could have uh, poten potentially come in and given some help. Um, you know, but uh, so I think he's, he's a lock to start. I think Colin Newell, who uh, suffered that injury against uh, Northern Iowa in the third overtime, uh, after he kind of rehabbed and got himself back in a position to play, I think he could have come in and contributed had there not been uh, kind of that set lineup there. But I think he's he's probably uh, one of the locks to start at some position, whether it's at uh, center or, or guard or whatever the case is. Um, then you can talk about some other names like uh, uh, Rob Hudson, like Joey Ramos, like um, Sean Foster, who does have seven starts under his belt, um, even though he was um, – not utilized as much last year in the actual lineup, but there are different directions they could go, um, certainly. But, um, you know, it, it's not like you're starting from scratch like you were a couple of years ago, but you're starting with guys that are young and, and some guys that are going to be inexperienced. So um, how much progress they can make uh, during spring ball in the summer and then during fall camp is, is going to be imperative to what kind of success they can have next year because you're going to want to keep Rock pretty healthy. Um, you're going to want to be able to open up and expand the offense. Uh, and and they're gonna be the key that can unlock all of that. So as, as that group kind of um, is solidified or unfolds or progresses, uh, what that looks like is gonna be one of the first things I I turn my attention to. Yeah, that was the one I listed as my biggest question, and it's not a question uh, so much because I don't think there's talent there as much as it's just inexperienced and we don't really know. I mean, the one senior on that line next year is going to be Sean Foster. He has seven career starts, but when, when a tackle got hurt this year, when Julian Good-Jones got hurt, the first tackle was not Foster. It was uh, Joey Ramos. And so, you know, he's obviously not even their next tackle up. And so your, your, your most experienced in terms of age um, is not necessarily the guy you're turning to. Now that's a positive because it means the young guys are stepping up, but we also just don't know what these guys can do because it's been behind the scenes. Campbell did tell us before the bowl game, though, that he thinks this is the best shape the offensive line's been in in terms of direction that it's going to go. And uh, he said, yeah, they lose a lot in terms of losing four seniors, but he didn't seem all that worried. And I know he's not going to sit there and say he's worried about the line, you know, this far out, but you know, he at least seemed confident that they have the bodies. And I did a way too early depth chart, and my left tackle was Joey Ramos. Uh, left guard was Trevor Downing. Center was Colin Newell. Right guard was Rob Hudson. And then right tackle was Sean Foster. But the biggest note I made there was that I think one of those positions for sure is going to be wrong because I still think Iowa State's going to go and try to get a JUCO or a grad transfer. And so I think that's the biggest thing that's hard to really sum this up in the next four to six weeks or a couple months is, you know, these guys are going to get more experience. They're going to get 15 practices worth of reps. Iowa State's going to start to mold what they want it to look like. But if they go get a JUCO or a grad transfer that can come in and start at a tackle position especially, 
the the look and at least the depth, if nothing else, is really going to change in that line. But the th- biggest thing I noted was, you know, last year Iowa State went into the season with 100-plus starts, I think 114 starts or something on its offensive line uh, in terms of career starts. This year, right now, they have 33. When you look at Colin Newell has 14, Trevor Downing has 12, and you mentioned Sean Foster has 7. So you have 33 career starts. It's not that they don't have talent, but it's like who's going to step up and – that's what's going to be most interesting. But you named all the names. I think I did too. Newell, Downing, Foster, Ramos, Hudson. I mean, those five I think we all expect. But can a Grant Triber, can a Jake Remsburg as redshirt freshman step up? It's asking a lot of a young guy. But uh, that's the biggest question along with, you know, do they bring in a Juco or do they bring in a grad transfer? If if, if they want to avoid this being the biggest question, I think they'll they'll go out and get one of those. And I think they're working to try to add another body or two to that to that group. Yeah, and that's the thing. It, it just seems like it's it's still a little bit fluid. And I guess when you're in late January and you don't have your first game until, what do they play an August game this year? Is it I September? think it's September. But it, so you're talking. Maybe it is August. I don't know. Either way, you're talking seven, eight, nine months. Uh, so there, there's time to figure it out. But also, these are the times when you have to see strides, see progress. Whether that's in the new strength and conditioning program brought by Dave Andrews, whether that's in spring ball when you get out on the field for those live reps whether it's um, whatever kind of um, uh, progress they can make in the summer on their own, whether it's in fall camp when you're kind of getting down to the nitty-gritty of things. And then um, certainly what we've seen in the last couple of years, they've they've been fluid uh, to start the season in games. Uh, you know, sometimes it hasn't been until the third or fourth game. And ideally, you'd, be have, it, you'd have it ready to go game one, game two. But um, – it's going to be something to monitor uh, certainly over the next uh, several months, the entire off season and, and maybe right as the season begins. But um, you know, as, as you get into spring ball, as we get around these guys a little bit more and certainly the coaches um, there's at least a little bit better of a picture that we can paint um, for everybody. But as of now, that's kind of maybe the general outlook of what that group could be. Sticking with the, the line theme, one of the other big questions I listed in doing my questions heading into 2020 uh, was the middle of the, defen- of the defensive line. When you look at the defensive line, it's going to be pretty experienced again. You bring back Jaquan Bailey uh, as a redshirt senior because of the injury, and then you bring back starters, Anywise Rike and Zach Peterson on the edges, not to mention Will McDonald, who had six sacks last year, and five of them came in the last three regular season games. Uh, Corey Suttle is a name that Matt Campbell's mentioned developing. So you look at the edges, and it feels like they're pretty deep. But you lose Ray Lima and Jamal Johnson in the middle, and the guys who've been behind them, we've not really seen much. Isaiah Least, for some games last year, was not dressed. I think he was banged up at times. Josh Bailey, we've heard about, but he's not broken through, and now he's going into his redshirt senior season, and it's kind of obviously do or die for him because it's it's either he produces or you know his career kind of becomes more of a you know a guy we've heard about but didn't really see. Um, the two guys coming in, Latrell Bankston, obviously really highly regarded, the third best or second best Juco defensive tackle in the country, a top you know, 15 Juco in the country by 24-7 sports. And Willis Singleton, we just bumped at 24-7 sports to an 89. Uh, so he's just right on the four-star cusp. You know, he's a really good player. So they've got some bodies that they like there, but replacing Johnson and Lima is going to be a difficult task. And I think a lot of Iowa State's questions center around there defensively because they're going to have to replace Marcel Spears probably with a Jake Hummel type. they got to go replace a safety, but they've got guys um, like DJ Miller or Ashim Young to maybe step in. I think that middle, that defensive tackle, nose guard spot is going to be the big question going into spring ball. And I wrote about the defensive line a little bit too, but it also kind of brings me to a question of what kinds of uh, changes or tweaks do they make to the defense? Because now it seems like, 
Um, you know, you've written about it and I've written about it. When Clemson is starting to run principles of the defense that Iowa State has ran the last few years, it, it's not a secret to offensive coordinators or offensive-minded coaches anymore. And, and Baylor shifted to it. Big 12 Baylor. teams are kind of shifting to it. And so now you have – I don't know if they have to shift out of it, but they have to adapt. And maybe that right. means more four-man or different looks. Right. It's another variation that you have to kind of create. So uh, how how the defensive line plays a role in that is going to be really interesting. You know, Latrell Bankston has played a lot of three-man front at Hutch. Um, do they play a little bit more four-man than they had in the past? How much do they stick with the three-man? Do, what do they run out of that nickel spot? I mean, th- there's so many different questions, uh, you know, to kind of go along with some of the changes along the defensive line. But I think having that group be largely experienced, um, you know, at least on the edges can give you a little bit of flexibility and some reassurance that um, the coaches can maybe this could be a good time to change some things because you have guys that have been around been around a little bit more and can adapt a little bit easier on the fly. But um, there, there's a lot to figure out, but there's also a base there of you kind of know what those guys can do, and, and that certainly is helpful as well. Isaiah Lee looked good when he played against West Virginia in 2018, but then I think people thought he would maybe be in there a little bit last year, and he wasn't. And so that's kind of the question is, you know, can he step into a role? And I think he was banged up, so that played a role. But uh, Bankston's really going to be the guy that has to step in. He was a, a really big sack guy and, and pass rusher at Hutchinson. Um, it'll be interesting to see what he does at Iowa State because we've seen it at Lima and Johnson. They were more of guys that are getting double teams and they're opening up things for the linebackers than they were pass rushers. And so he's a completely different type of tackle, I think. Uh, but any Wazrike can go inside at times probably. Uh, Tucker Robertson played more outside. He played a defensive end a couple snaps in the bowl game. Um, but he can go inside. He slimmed down a little bit. But they've got some different options that they can present different looks or move guys around. But that's maybe one of the more interesting things I'm interested to hear from both Matt Campbell and um, Eli Rashid is – you know, what they expect um, because some of those guys can do different things and, you know, they could do some different looks uh, with that front. Uh, the last question, because we don't have to go through all of them, but then last one I'll mention, and then if you had any other ones, um, was finding Brock Purdy some new weapons. Now, I think part of the offseason thing is Brock Purdy's got to take another step. You know, last season he took a step of sitting in the pocket a little bit more, which was sometimes – too much in a lot of people's opinion and I think we found out later that some of that was because of his ankle he wasn't running as much um so I think he's still got to run but he's got to take another step in terms of just knowledge of the game you look at that Oklahoma State game and he admitted afterwards that you know one of the interceptions was because they showed him one look and then they switched to a different look post snap I think that's just kind of the gradual you know thing that you learn as as time goes along he learned that in the game from one week to the next and was really good the next week against Oklahoma He's just got to take another step learning and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, but when you look at his pass catchers, he loses well, Michael Petway and Deshante Jones. And last year we talked about how you're going to replace Hakeem Butler. It's just a constant question and how you're going to replace guys in, in college football. But you know, between those two guys, they lose 131 passes for uh, more than 1,500 yards. Who steps up? I think you know, Tariq Milton's going to step into a bigger role. Uh, Sean Shaw is going to step into a bigger role. But what does Darren Wilson and Landon Akers and Xavier Hutchinson do? Does Darian Porter break through? I think that's a big question. Uh, we know you know Charlie Kohler, Chase Allen, Dylan Sainer can do something. So there's going to be a lot of targets up for grabs again by losing your top two pass catchers in terms of catches. And um, I know it's just kind of a question that we seem to deal with the last couple of years, just like the offensive line. But it's really interesting because Campbell raved about Xavier Hutchinson. If he can become – a really good player for them, even in the in the vein of what like Matt Eaton did um, in year one, then it'll be interesting to watch that position unfold. 
Yeah, their track record for finding playmakers on the edges um, has certainly uh, been proven successful. They've they seamlessly transitioned LaMichael Petway, who I thought, you know, grad transferring in college football is relatively new, but he's probably their most successful player that they've recruited at that and was invaluable last year. Um, and you mentioned bigger roles um, for Milton and Sean Shaw. The, what I'm going to be interested to see is do the roles change? change uh certainly Shaw is kind of your outside guy who can uh go win those one-on-one matchups because of his height and his size and um his overall skill there but uh Milton has uh played inside before does he go back and play a little bit more of that M just because he's a little bit smaller but quick uh does he fill that void how much do you play him outside um you know how the tight ends figure into all this do they split out a little bit more uh than they even did last year um you know, Landon Akers is certainly capable of filling the M role, but um, he's only done it sparingly. Uh, so taking on a little bit bigger of a challenge there, uh, something to watch. Um, so, it, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of different possibilities. But like I said, the track record is there, I think, for them to be able to figure it out. And it's probably a little bit easier for them to do that than it is to solve some of the questions than, say, about the offensive line, just because as you get farther away from uh, the ball or the, on the line of scrimmage, it gets it, it, it maybe gets a little bit easier, but um, you know, certainly valid questions. We've we've asked the last couple of years, and uh, they've come up with the answers. But um, they're going to have to do it again and, and replace um, guys who were um, you know integral last year to a lot of what they did offensively, and were certainly uh, security blankets for Brock Purdy. Yeah, Sean Shaw had 15 catches last year, and I think you could see that number as much as triple. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of that was down the stretch, and Nate Shuhaus used that as a motivating factor and kind of a factor to push them. In last offseason, I think he'll probably do the same thing. Is uh, we didn't mention Joe Skates there, but if right. he can figure everything out, I mean, he could really have an incredible jump in terms of just production. You know, he had a few catches that could really um, go up, you know, ten times uh, if he really puts it all together. But there's a lot of competition uh, in that room. That those that's probably the main questions. I mean, there are some other ones I had posted. Cause obviously, I did five questions, and there's going to be more. But uh, I think I tweeted it out, and people said special teams. I mean, that's going to be a big mm-hmm. question. One of the other things I'd mentioned was getting back to the details a little bit. You know, they, they lost the turnover margin more. Their, their penalties at times, especially false starts, were kind of ill-timed. Um, and just some detail things, which probably incorporates some of the special teams' mistakes. That's a that's a question this offseason, too, and a big thing that they have, have to kind of figure out as they get back to basics a little bit. Um, but was there anything else that you wanted to touch on or should we move on uh to the final section of this podcast which uh would be talking 2020 recruiting yeah i'm fine moving on i think um you know the the detail part is probably was most frustrating for people because it was such a repeated problem um that was one of my questions as well how what does it take to fix that how do you go about fixing it what can you see in games that you can adjust and maybe account for for some of those issues um you know i think Last year was probably an eye-opening or learning experience for everybody. So um, you have more of a base on on how things went wrong, and now it's just looking for answers. So how that it gets incorporated in the offseason is going to be big. And, um, you know, as, as we'll get into here, um, some of these 2020 guys could be um, really key in, in helping, I guess, springboard uh, this team forward and, and seeing what kind of – uh, progress they can make in the fall. Okay, so let's round out the podcast with 10 or 15 minutes on um, the 2020 recruiting class. We don't have to spend a lot of time, but uh, I know you know they signed 21 members back in December. They all signed. TJ Tampa took a couple extra days. Georgia came in and offered him uh, the night before signing day. 
and he molded over for two, three days, but did end up signing with Iowa State uh, later that week. And so Iowa State signed 21 players in the in the 2020 recruiting class. Uh, back in December, the final signing day will come uh, next week during the first week of February. Iowa State could add a player or two. Uh, there's a couple players that they've at least been monitoring and trying to figure out what to do if they want to add anybody or not. They could obviously, down the road, add graduate transfers or even some late JUCOs. So this class might not be done. It's mostly done, and, and there could be another player here or there. But uh, for the sake of this, we don't know what else might happen exactly. And so let's talk about this class is 21 member hall that they signed it's ranked sixth in the big 12 i think that's one notable thing is they've gotten to the point under Campbell where they're pretty much in the middle of the pack in the big 12 uh, right now they're ahead of kansas state texas tech um i think baylor and kansas um yeah those are the four schools they're ahead of and they're like a point behind oklahoma state so basically five and six iowa state and oklahoma state are interchangeable um they both basically have the same or very similar composite averages, and they're basically neck and neck. So Iowa State, over the last two recruiting classes, has gotten to the point where they're consistently uh, ranked ahead of you know Texas Tech, Kansas State, Kansas, and even this year ranked ahead of Baylor. Now that's not the end all, but it, it is start to kind of show you that that talent increase. Obviously, we've seen the the production come in terms of where Iowa State's finishing in the Big 12 Conference in that race as well. So uh, they are doing a lot better in the Big 12 and. Uh, right now, their 24-7 sports composite average after some recent updates, and there's going to be a few more updates probably to come, is 8549, uh, a mid-three-stars mid in 85. So they're above a mid-three-star in terms of the class average. Uh, but Dylan, I guess uh, just from we, – we, we heard from Matt Campbell about a month ago about this class, and he raved about uh, – Xavier Hutchinson probably stood out to me the most. He said good things about Latrell Banks, and I think it really stood out when he talked about Willis Singleton – uh, those three guys really stand out aside from the two quarterbacks, which I think is always a lot of interest. Um, what stood out to you maybe about what Campbell said or uh, anything about this recruiting class as you, know, you looked at it about a month ago? Yeah, there, there's a lot of things. Um, certainly the, the JUCO recruiting that occurs is always interesting because those are guys you expect to come in and, and be able to contribute right away. We've talked a lot about Bankston and, and the need for him on the defensive line, but Xavier Hutchinson I think is a really interesting case because of some of the attention he got late in the process from Oklahoma. Uh, Nebraska was certainly in there too, but um, you guys have him listed at 6'3 and 200 pounds, so he does have a little bit of size to him, could place him outside if they wanted him to, um, and has the potential to be in that mold of of you know that uh, kind of go-to guy um, because of his ball skills and, and his speed and, and all those sorts of things that you look for to win one-on-one matchups. So I think he stands out. Um, one of the other things that maybe isn't as big or, or sexy to talk about as the quarterbacks or the JUCOs is that three of the early enrollees were their safety kids uh, with Craig McDonald, Mason Chambers, and Jordan Morgan. And you talked about um, you know some of the, the young guys that have come in and filled in there last year with Kimani King and DJ Miller. Um, you know, there's there's going to be competitions there to kind of find the right fit as well. Um, you know, we know Greg Eisworth is going to be there now that he's getting healthier in the offseason. And, and um, you know, hopefully for him, uh, he can kind of keep that clean bill of health uh, in 2020. But uh, there will be, uh, and Lawrence White as well is going to be back there, but there will be some competitions there to kind of figure out what the right look is. And, um, you know, it's just kind of a little side note to some of the other things, but uh, a lot, I think, to, to watch for in the class. I guess uh, you're the recruiting guy. What, what stood out to you maybe more than um, than anything when you just look at the group? 
Yeah, well, that's one of the biggest notes this year is, is the early enrollees, not just the safeties, but Iowa State has nine early enrollees. That's definitely a program record. And that's not to mention the two gray shirts that come in from 2019. So all in all, I think I mentioned this at the top, Iowa State has 11 new players on scholarship for winter workouts uh, between the JUCOs and the, the mid-year enrollees from high school. And so when you have that many players, 11 players coming in early, uh, that changes spring ball. It's going to make it think, more interesting for fans. Hopefully they'll want to read some of that stuff because – uh, there's a lot of new names, and new names I think always draw some excitement, especially guys like Latrell Bankston, uh, Aiden Bauman, and uh, Xavier Hutchinson, whether it's because they're Jucos or quarterbacks and who's going to back up Brock Purdy is going to be a big question. Um, that's interesting, I think, just to have 11 new guys. I mean, that's where college football recruiting is kind of trending. Alabama has traditionally over the last recent years had like 14 in a row early. But for Iowa State to now kind of join that mix, I think that's a, a big step. And Matt Campbell said it, you know, that – it's been it's becoming harder for a true freshman to play in this program. And last year they burned three red shirts and uh, Brees Hall, DJ Miller, and Kimani King. Uh, the year before I think they burned four. Uh, it's becoming harder to play because the talent at the top is it's harder to pass those guys. Uh, but when you come early, in early, especially at that safety position, some a couple of those guys have builds that could play early. Xavier Hutchinson and Latrell Bankston should be counted upon to play in 2020. That crop, I think this class has potential to have some guys that contribute earlier in their career. And that's what probably stands out the most, um, you know, to me, other than the balance, I mean, having a composite above, you know, almost at an 86, you know, at eight, five, four, nine, you know, above me and three star. That's what's the reason that that composite there is, is not because that they have Hunter Deckers as a four star and a guy that's ranked, you know, as a 90 plus guy. It's because, you know, their lowest guy, in terms of position players, I'll take out the long snapper, is Arquell Smith, and he's at an 82-77. Um, so he's almost an 83, which is, you know, two points off of a mid-three star. So he's a low three, but not the lowest three. And that's the bottom of your class. I mean, they've gotten to the point where they've got depth from top to bottom, and that's what I think is starting to stand out about their classes is, you know, the, the staff may disagree where some of these guys are ranked. You know, they might have some of these guys higher on their board because that's why they took them. Uh, but according to 24-7 sports, there's not really a – a low bottom to this class it's it's pretty good all the way around and that that's always interesting and then the sign you know you mentioned the the not needing guys to play as early uh anymore and um you know as as you kind of like i said mac earlier matt campbell has, has called this a developmental program before and if you're developing guys and you're uh, having your more experienced guys play earlier or, or more readily than, uh, you know, that kind of helps, I think, um, you know, g get those guys that are younger uh, in a position where they're ready to play and they're not thrust into situations that they're uncomfortable and they're just more kind of ready to go. But uh, you mentioned it just briefly there. I think the, the long snapper edition is certainly one that's been um, – you know, it, it's important and maybe um, people can roll their eyes out at it a little bit, but um, Stephen Wartell, uh, kind of the staple back there at Long Snapper the last four years, they get a kid in now to kind of uh, potentially replace him. And, um, you know, th that's a, a key position too, even though it doesn't figure into maybe what the rest of the class is and just given um, some of the more notable skill positions and things, but it is important. Yeah, one of the questions I always get around signing day is which of these guys could burn their red shirts early, which of these guys could play early. And uh, I think I, this year I did say Kobe Hathcock, their long snapper from Arizona, would be one guy that you could probably for sure count upon 
to burn his red shirt. And it's like you said, kind of boring in terms of, you know, people don't think about that position as much until something like the Texas game this last year happens. Um, but he's one that obviously would play early. Uh, you kind of continue on that list. I think Xavier Hutchinson, Latrell Bankson would be expected to play early. Those guys are Juco, so it's a little bit different. Um, but, you know, those corners, I think, could have a shot to play early. Uh, a receiver, you know, those are the positions where Iowa State has played guys early. You look at last year, uh, Kim Monty King, DJ Miller, they got opportunities because they're at the edge on the defensive backfield. The year before, Anthony Johnson um, got got run at that cornerback position. So, you know, whether it's a Michael Antoine or one of those safeties, I think those guys are guys that are always got to be in the mix just because they love going pretty deep at that defensive back position, eight deep uh, at, at those spots. And so the more guys that they can have ready, the more they're willing to play. And I think that's going to give those guys a shot. I guess, you know, one thing I did want to note before we wrap up is, you know, I think uh, TJ Tampa is a guy that could be a hidden gem in this class, a guy that was really under the radar for most of the cycle, um, a really good basketball player. You probably see videos of him dunking and that sort of thing on social media. Uh, but the night before signing day, you know, he gets an offer from Georgia, and he he contemplated waiting till this next week to sign. Had he waited till next week to sign, it was going to be very difficult because not only would Georgia have been still in that mix, I think more schools would have been in the mix, except, especially schools with new coaches like Arkansas uh, or Mississippi State or what have you. So uh, that's a big win for them to get him to sign early. Um, I think Aiden Bitter is going to be really interesting, a guy that we've maybe talked about before back in the summer when he signed, a really good high jumper, long jumper, uh, really long wingspan. Uh, Cody Thompson is kind of the the comparison to him, a uh, former Toledo receiver who's now, or at least recently been in the NFL. Just in terms of his body's the same. He's he's 20 pounds lighter than what Cody Thompson was at Toledo, but you know, similar type of athlete just in terms of his ability to jump and and run and just kind of his lanky body. So those are a couple guys, but guys who've recently got you know ratings upgrades at 24/7 Sports. Tyler Miller uh, has seen a pretty decent upgrade to an 86. Uh, I think you know Iowa State really likes him, and he's enrolled early. And then Hunter Decker's uh, finished as the number 228 overall player in the country uh, for the second straight year. Iowa State has a player in the top 247. Last year it was Brees Hall and Jirel Brock. Uh, this is only the fourth player ever for Iowa State to be in the top 247 since its inception in 2010. That fourth player is obviously Alan Lazard. So good company for Hunter Decker's to be in and. And, uh, you know, him and Bauman are important pieces behind Purdy in the years to come. So that's probably enough recruiting. I guess, you know, the last thing would be that, you know, keep your eyes out. You know, stuff could still happen, whether I think the two positions or the three positions to watch would be cornerback. Uh, they could go out, get a grad transfer, Juco corner, maybe even a high school guy. Um, and then offensive line, you know, they're still looking at Juco's. You know, I know Jeff Myers has seen a couple of Juco's in the last couple of weeks, and they'll look at grad transfer Juco's on that offensive line. So offensive line, defensive backfield, they've, they hosted a kicker recently uh, at the high school ranks. Maybe they'll bring in somebody to be behind the Sally after his, his career ends in 2020, but they're mostly done. You know, what we just talked about, that's most, most of what it is, but you have anything else to add or, you know, I think we're running right about 50 minutes. So I think we covered about whatever has happened in the last month. We've basically covered it. I think. Yeah. You mentioned it earlier. We're going to be hearing from Dave Andrews pretty soon. Um, you know, hopefully here from Matt Campbell soon. We haven't had a chance to talk to him since the Camping World Bowl. So there will be things coming up here to kind of get us through the lull a little bit of, of winter and, and kind of get us ready for, for spring ball. Like we said, um, you know, February can go pretty quick and, and we'll be there before we know it. So looking forward to all that. And, um, you know, it's kind of nice to get a refresher on some of these things and, and kind of, um, you know, like, like you said at the top, uh, do some housekeeping, but um, always good to talk football no matter what time of year it is. Well, thanks, Dylan, for coming on. That's that's basically the reason I wanted to do this was we're getting towards February. We're going to talk to, like you said, Dave Andrews, maybe Matt Campbell coming soon. And 
I thought we better do all this house cleaning and recruiting and before it gets too old. Um, and, and once once we talk to those guys, I think everyone will start to shift to that. And then uh, spring ball, maybe late February, early March. We haven't got the exact date. I tried to inquire the other day if there might be a spring game. I know fans are saying the basketball season's not going well. Hopefully they do a spring game. Uh, they haven't done one the last two years. It didn't sound overly optimistic that it will change. I, they don't, I don't know for sure. Nobody really knows yet, but... Hopefully there's a spring game. I don't mind the spring game. I like having something to cover in mid-April. So we'll have plenty more for you to coming on the Ames Tribune and uh, 247sports.com. So thanks to Dylan, and uh, that's going to do it for this edition of the Cyclone Scoop.